Hey everybody, Dan here, and uh, we're doing a little something different this week. It's time for another Beyond the Paywall episode of Our Son Pete. What is Our Son Pete, you might be asking? Uh, well, it is our monthly bonus episode for Patreon supporters, where I go through every comic appearance of uh, my favorite mutant character, Pete Wisdom. Uh, and I do this with a guest, and it's a good time. And it's a great way to support the show uh, at the uh, $3 tier and up. And in return, you get to listen to uh, more of me. Uh, this week, uh, we are giving you the episode we did on Excalibur number 94, which is sort of the Days of Future Past uh, issue. And uh, we had a great guest for that one. Uh, I was joined by Connor Goldsmith from the Cerebro podcast, and we talked about uh, you know, well, we talked about Pete, obviously, and, uh, you know, talk about Betsy Braddock and we talk about the future and, uh, you know, what this issue gets right and wrong. And, uh, again, it's a good time. So I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you consider subscribing to the WMQ and a Patreon so you can hear more of these, uh, month after month. All right. You listen now. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Our Son Pete, a monthly Patreon-exclusive WMQ&A bonus podcast where I, Dan Grote, read through every appearance of British mutant spy master Peter Winston Wisdom. This month we'll be covering Excalibur Volume 1, number 94, aka the one where they do a Days of Future Past but in England, and I'm joined by another fantastic guest. Uh, you know him as the host of the Cerebro podcast, it's Connor Goldsmith. Connor, you honor me with your presence. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's great to be here. So uh, what is your, uh, I guess, history with, with Pete Wisdom and I guess this particular era of Excalibur in general? How much of it had you, have you had to uh, reread for Cerebro or read for the first time? So I subscribed to this run of Excalibur as a kid in the 90s. Uh, I was reading it as it came out. Looking back on it, I didn't really understand most of what was happening because I was a child. But uh, Excalibur was sort of my book because I had bought back issues of the Claremont and Davis and Davis and Davis stuff. And so I wanted to read it as it was coming out. And unfortunately, it was just a very, very different book uh, by the late 90s. So um, I would say that... With Pete Wisdom, my primary connection, honestly, is like the fandom spaces that I was in as a teenager. I was mm. more of a lurker. I wasn't really like active in them, but mm. there were a lot of women at places like the Subreality Cafe who were like big X-Men fans writing specifically about Pride and Wisdom. Like that was a big ship of the 90s. Mm. Um Personally, I didn't quite get it. I thought he was hot, but uh, not appropriate for Kitty. I didn't really clock the age gap issue because I was a child. So Kitty to me was a grown up. But uh, I remember people talking about it. And so I sort of absorbed it via the internet. But my, uh, my big response to this period is more just like it's about time amanda sefton was a regular in a book like that's sort of my <laughs> my hot take although all of the stuff that ellis does with amanda 
than Margali is fully insane. So I, <laughs> in the long run, I don't know if it was was good or bad. Um, but I'm a big Amanda Sefton head. Uh, I've reread this portion of Excalibur a few times now, once for the Moira McTaggart episode, because I wanted to figure out at what point she has to have traded out with the golem for the House of X retcon to work. Um, but I also reread portions of it for the Kate Pride episode the Colossus episode, the Megan episode, the Brian episode. I've covered most of the Excalibur cast at this point. I actually haven't covered Amanda yet uh, or Pete, but um, that's part of why I was keen to come on to talk about this stuff because I think he is an interesting character. He's a bit of like an off-brand John Constantine, but uh, I never mind that as an archetype. And before anyone corrects me, because this is a podcast about a British comic, I do know it's pronounced Constantine, but I'm a classics major and it just never comes out of my mouth that way. I was a classics major like a million years ago. You get what I mean. Anyway, um, I guess I would say that's it. Oh, I most recently revisited this material for the Wolfsbane episode, which was hell. <laughs> <laughs> she got she got one good issue. She she got one. She did. She got the one good issue with Bridget and uh, Reverend Craig, and and that's that's about it. But listen, mm -hmm. she had been rescued from the clutches of a writer who I think did a lot of damage to that character over about 20 years. So this was a little bit of a respite for her, at least. Um, but yeah, that's sort of that's that's my late 90s Excalibur vibe. I loved this book and it's been kind of a little bit of a shame to revisit it and find that I don't like it as much as I did as a kid, but I love this issue. So I was glad you asked me on to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely reading it as as an adult, uh, <laughs> the holes are a lot bigger, put it, put mm -hmm. it that way. <laughs> In fact, I just noticed another one, uh, which we'll get to shortly. Uh, just well, you can see the fingers the of editorial really like in it because the mandate that Lobdell and then Alice got was to make this X-Men in England versus the weirder, more iconoclastic book that Excalibur had been before that. And so they forced them to use these characters like Moira and Colossus and Rain and make it more of a traditional X-Men book. And you can really see that here because this is mostly a Betsy Braddock issue, right? Like it's yeah. not even really about the Excalibur cast members. It's Psylocke's hot right now. Let's do a Psylocke story. Um, so, you know, in that sense, the I know too much about how the sausage is made now, not to be like picking that apart, but you also get weird, weird stuff that is very Excalibur. Like, you know, my girl Tangerine makes no appearance in this episode uh, this issue rather which is uh always fun she has like four ever so <laughs> <laughs> a, a third of a zaladane yes yes exactly you get it you get me but uh just to, to kind of catch the listeners up uh so last issue excalibur number 93 uh wolfsbane confronts the reverend craig and pete does his really bad charles xavier impression which turns out to be foreshadowing uh, and it's the first time anyone ever says to me, my X-Men. Is Pete impersonating Xavier before Charles ever said it in canon? Did you know that? I did not know that. Well, now you do. My mind is in the very first issue blown. back in 
1963, he says something like, and now return to me, my X-Men. But the phrase to me, my X-Men originates from Excalibur 93. Wow. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay. We're to assume that he's quoting Charles, but Charles mm-hmm. has never actually said that phrase. It's like play it again, Sam. Like it's not the right quote, but it's what we all know. Yeah. Yeah. Gilding uh, the it- lily. It's like one of those. Mm-hmm. And that was a bad Xavier impression too. So it's, it's funny how that works out, but uh, yeah. So with that out of the way, let's dig into Excalibur number 94 days of future tense cover date, February, 1996 written by Warren Ellis, drawn by Casey Jones, inked by Tom Simmons, colored by Ariane Lunchwick with separations by Malibu's Hughes, uh, lettered by Richard Starkings and comic craft edited by Suzanne Gaffney inspired by, as the credits say, days of future past by Chris Claremont and John Byrne and days of futures yet to come by Alan Davis with a cover by Casey Jones and Bob Viacek, in which, and this is the thing that I just noticed, Megan and Wolfsbane swap hair colors. So you've got the the you know oh. the D, good old DOFP wanted posters behind Brian and Betsy. Yeah. And Megan has brown hair and Wolfsbane is blonde. You're right. I hadn't even noticed that, but you're absolutely right. I like on the cover, first of all, I am very unclear in this issue as to whether Betsy's supposed to be in Kanan's body or her own body, because the 90s artists were not super good at depicting people of different races. So I'm like never a thousand percent (laughs) sure. And on the cover, it definitely looks like white Betsy, but then in the interiors, it looks more like Asian Betsy. But honestly, it doesn't matter because it's, you know, it's 90s Psylocke and we know what we're going to get. But what I like is that at a glance, the the Wolfsbane poster looks like it says lesbian. Because the way it's, I don't, <laughs> don't think that's intentional, but it says like Luftspin because um, the, the W-O and the E are cut off. And so when I was like glancing back over it and I looked at the cover, I was like, they got your brain. They got your number. <laughs> <laughs> Alas, she's still to this day, not openly a Luftspin. So. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Um... Uh, So quick summary of the issue. Uh, It is the distant future, the year 2013. Uh, England is not incredible. Absolutely. Uh, England is not immune from the events of days of future past. Black Air, the super shady British intelligence agency, has struck a deal with the Sentinels to rule England. Excalibur is taken to living under under Braddock Manor like the Batcave and uh, based on some intel from Wisdom prepares to launch one final strike against Black Air only to discover they have Douglock strung up and spliced into their computer networks, which apparently makes them very good at eviling. Uh, just when all seems lost, Brian wakes up in bed and realizes it was all a flash forward from his trip through the time stream of some 20 issues earlier. And also more members of the team have PhDs than I'd realized. So uh, Connor, I kind of want to just get, you know, some quick first impressions from you, like the things that struck you immediately about this issue, maybe some stray Betsy thoughts. Uh, I know we kind of already started down that vein. Sure. Um, So first and foremost, uh, it's a fun twist on the way a lot of these stories go in that with Betsy, Warren is the one who has died tragically and Betsy is the one left mourning her lover, whereas usually it's like, oh, my girlfriend died in this alternate timeline or something. It's it's a nice gender flip on that. And the book, Mm -hmm. uh, the issue is really female heavy it's a very jaded rain um as like the sort of sage behind the computer consoles before this is before tessa ever became sage obviously but you get what i mean <laughs> uh 
the oracle of birds of prey is I think more the reference here in, in this story. Um, but then you have Betsy and Tangerine. Tangerine's an interesting one. She's a character from days of futures yet to come. Uh, the Alan Davis story that ends the Davis run in which she is the telepath who is part of the future hero team in Rachel's future on Earth 811. Uh, this story doesn't seem to be Earth 811, the Days of Future Past. It's like its own timeline that's inspired by it because here America is doing relatively okay, I think, and Britain is the one that's become a dystopia. So it's like a, a little bit of a switcheroo, which makes sense for Excalibur. Uh, it also means that Ellis is able to do whatever he wants with the characters rather than be beholden to the Days of Future Past canon as it had been enumerated in Claremont and Davis. Uh, not that Davis paid a ton of attention to what Claremont had written with it because Days of Futures <laughs> Yet to Come does not scan very well, especially with the gene stuff. Um, but Tangerine is interesting here because she appears right after 93, where we're introduced to Rain's half-sister, Bridget Shane, who's a redhead, who's younger than them. And in this story, they're repeatedly saying that Tangerine is like a teenager and there's, they don't want to send a girl to do a woman's job. Um, I know there was a fan theory at the time that Tangerine was supposed to be like the future version of Bridget Shane. Uh, now Bridget Shane's a pyrokinetic, not a telepath, but as you may recall in the final issue of Captain Britain and MI 13 by Paul Cornell, many years later, Tangerine uses pyrokinesis. So in one of her four other appearances. Uh, so I like that idea. I think that the problem it creates would just be that first of all, you would have to like point people to issue 93 of Excalibur, which is not enormously well collected. Um, and also she was like a child. So with the sliding time scale, you'd really have to age her up. And I think that that is doable, but since we've seen Tangerine as an adult in MI13, I think we maybe have to just let that uh, Easter egg go, but it is nice to see if that's the intention that this is building on the prior story because otherwise this is a very strange bottle episode. It it is absolutely, and you know the, you mentioned aging Tangerine up, but the one thing this issue I cannot tell what it's doing is how it is aging up the main cast. Because Everyone, yeah. It, it, Pete is really the only one who looks like they've aged. Everybody else, I mean. Betsy's aged into fabulous huge hair, uh, you know. Yeah, Betsy and Brian and Megan all look sort of roughly the same age. Rain looks Gother. roughly the same age, but just like ragged. You know what I mean? Um, my assumption with Wisdom is that his appearance here, apart from obviously evoking Professor Xavier, is meant to suggest the torture that he underwent at the hands of Black care has sort of like prematurely aged him it's important to remember that professor xavier is not that much older than the 05 True. uh if you look back at the 60s material that's been de-emphasized in the years since but back when they were writing the 60s stuff charles about 30 when they're like 17 18 so wisdom is a similar age gap with kitty actually because he's like in his early 30s and kitty's 
suddenly 18 in the Ellis run. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the Xavier comp works, but it does feel a little bit, I mean, this is what, 96? Yes, uh, February 96. So probably, so uh, probably set... came out like December 95, but yeah. Well, right. So yeah, cover dated to um, to 96. So it's set seven years in the future. And he certainly doesn't look like 38 to 42. No let's say so it is i think meant to be conspicuous but it does feel a little odd that it's never commented upon that said he's clearly like gone full crazy because you know megan and brian mentioned that he hasn't spoken to them in months and things like that he's become very weird you get the sense that he only talks to karma he's i mean well, well we don't meet this character later until the pride and wisdom miniseries but he's become a lot like his father yes and I actually think that one thing that actually stood out to me is um, it's just because of the way karma is done up here, but they mm -hmm. have a very arcade and Miss Locke vibe in this story as well. Yeah. Um, but that's just because she is done up as like a dragon lady in that kind of dress, which is something that people love to do with karma in alternate universes. She is also Angel's Miss Locke in Age of Apocalypse. Uh she's a support character a lot of the time so it's easy to put her in that role but whenever they want to be like karma's all grown up now and a little morally ambiguous like let's put her in a kipow and you know make her haircut more severe it's a little bit tropey but you know days of future past and all of these related stories are very tropey pulp kind of stories mm -hmm. and and also the original wolverine madripoor stuff when she was serving in uh, absolutely uncle. when she's working for her uncle she also has kind of that except there it's like it's ill-fitting right whereas here mm -hmm. you get the sense that she's become morally unburdened let's say the implication i think is because the sentinels killed her siblings but that's not said it, it seems like whatever tied her to her human name is now gone is the implication mm -hmm. from the narration um which I always appreciate in a karma story because her human name doesn't make any sense. So it's always <laughs> better to just call her karma because <laughs> it's not good Vietnamese at all. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, I always get a giggle reading the caption, the year is 2013. The future is a cold place because, you know, of course it's in the past now, but you know, I'm not, I'm not saying real world 2013 was perfect. That was the year of the Boston Marathon bombing, for example. But, you know, through the lens of 2022, it, it's... <laughs> yeah, my sister was a paramedic in Boston at the time. That was not a great my year. Gosh. Yeah, no. <laughs> also, though, it's like, if you think about it, you know, what were was Romany Wisdom of Black Air in uh, Mitt Romney's Binder Full of Women? Very possibly because that was that, I guess that had just happened. That was 2012, because that was the election year. But yes. it was, this is like, we just started Obama part two. Um, and listen, Britain was not sending its best in 2013 and has continued to really not send its best at, to Parliament. So you know what? Like, maybe not too off base. Um, the first and biggest objection I have to, this story is mm -hmm. uh, Megan's haircut. I realize that that's a great way to uh, make it clear that this is an alternate universe. But if Megan doesn't have big hair, something's gone terribly, terribly wrong. And I mean, th that's the thing. I, I like, just... she's got 1995's hottest haircut, not uh, 2013's uh, 
right it's like it's she looks just, like she stepped off of uh hackers or something she we're, we're like she looks like demi Moore in gi jane like once it grows out a little bit it's not um where demi Moore generally kind of had that haircut for a while afterward but uh oh i forgot to mention actually with karma one thing yeah. that i do think is really interesting here is that her size signature is blue which if you go back to her first appearance is the color that it was before she absorbed her brother tran and his signature was pink and hers was blue and then once she like eats his soul or whatever to stop him her signature becomes blue uh, becomes pink rather and it's been pink Mm -hmm. ever since um it was interesting once they were separated again recently uh her size signature didn't revert to blue but i figure that's just artistic license because at this point the pink one is kind of iconic but i think it's just interesting here to see like it's another signifier that she's been disconnected from her family or that something traumatic has happened to switch that back or who knows i just thought that was interesting and that might just be a colorist decision who knows but yeah i mean the colorist is is making choices in this comic because Mm -hmm. arian lynchwick gave psylocke blue sclera and yeah she just has like pure blue eyes which is weird that's never been a betsy look no, and I like I, I had to go back to. I'm like, all right, I'm googling like Jim Lee Psylocke. Nope, Joe Matarera Psylocke. Nope, nope. <laughs> Got a big ugly red scar tattoo on her eye because it's the '90s and everybody has one of those in the '90s. But uh, that's about it. No, and her eyes. I mean, they were blue before Slaymaster ripped them out, mm-hmm. but they haven't been blue in a very long time. So it's curious, and her like her psychic signatures are not blue so it is a, it is a curious choice that said the fact that she has you know filmy like storm style eyes is mm-hmm. definitely a choice that the penciler made and is probably part of the script i assume that's to underline that her psychic powers have grown or or whatever uh one thing that i was struck by reading this is how confusing the chain from strike to rcx to who to black air always is like throughout the run of excalibur so like when they're like the rcx gorilla gorillas are fighting black air i'm like didn't rcx become black i just always <laughs> this is this is something i'll have to revisit at some point for the wisdom episode when i get there but um black air is a great name it does sound suitably spooky and i like their evil obelisk in this story that they live in yes they live in the monolith from uh 2001 from 2001 a space odyssey but it looks great in the middle of london yeah black and menacing and rectangle (laughs) it looks like a uh if you stood a portable hard drive on its end Oh, the thing we forgot actually to, to mention, I'm sorry about yeah. it being 2013, because that is when Claremont set Days of Future Past, um, is that Claremont also had Rachel Summers talk about like the collapse of the Twin Towers a few years earlier. That did, That is what Which happened. is in, in Uncanny, which is fully crazy. People are always sending me that panel and I'm like, well, yeah, guys, like there are a few big landmarks it would be upsetting to destroy in New York City. That's why Al Qaeda targeted one of them so it's it, he he had like a one in four chance of being right um but it is eerie to read the panels of like when it all began as the towers fell and all when rachel's remembering being a child in like 2001 roughly mm-hmm. um 
but yeah, no, sorry, I interrupted you. I was, I guess, oh, no, and that's good. Notes. And that's the thing like pre 9 11, Marvel used to blow up the Twin Towers on the regular Juggernaut and Black Tom and X Force number four or whatever it was. And mm-hmm. they, they were, they were a target in fiction. And then I guess in reality, that got dark. But, uh, yeah, so we have the uh, we have the team photo from the present reminding us that uh, holy shit, this book has a huge cast that is just sort of plucked characters from wherever, uh, and they don't all always get page time. Uh, and we kind of find out what happened to them over the years. Uh, Amanda Septon was killed by her mother again. All that shit was fucked up. Uh, Nightcrawler. Yeah, was- I, don't, I don't really buy that, but it's fine. <laughs> uh, Nightcrawler. It, it fits Ellis's conception of the characters, so it's whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Nightcrawler moves back to the States and dies, presumably in Sentinel attacks. Kitty and Colossus return to the States to marry. LOL. Uh, Douglock disappears. <laughs> Rory becomes Ahab, which is a Days of Future Past thing. And that is not mentioned at all in this issue. Right. I was going to say he doesn't necessarily in this timeline because it's not mentioned. And this isn't day, this isn't actually Days of Future Past, right? That's true. I, I have to think so, of it as like I mean, I, I hate Rory Campbell and his role in 90s Excalibur generally. So I'm fine with him just like being sir not appearing in this film. The fact that Rachel kisses him in the Lobdell run is one of the foulest things I've ever seen in an X-Men comic. <laughs> so, yeah. I get that our <laughs> Rory didn't do that, but I don't care. <laughs> and the thing is, after he loses his leg, he kind of just disappears and I think Warren forgets about him and then he shows up as well, like a Ahab horse, a never really matters again either. I mean, it's just sort of one of those things where it's a plot that like after this, Ahab shows up circa the 12 as like one of the horse of apocalypse. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's presumably Rory Campbell because it's in the present, but it's never elaborated upon like many things in the 12. So uh, we're just left to wonder. I mean, unless the explanation was going to, and, and that was not a time that lent itself to consistency, editorial consistency and explanation. It was going to be like, oh, I was manipulated by Apocalypse. I'm going to kill all mutants now. But uh, I'm sure that could have been a story if anyone had ever cared to do it. But I, I just don't think that like Rory Campbell of a 616 has ever appeared again. So that's yeah. fine with me personally. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then Moira dies, but as we all know, it was really a Shi'ar Golem, but we don't know that right, yet. Right, so who cares? It's fine. Yes, exactly. She was evil anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and then, yeah, kudos to this panel for remembering Brian has a PhD because I forgot. Yeah. He's in nuclear physics. Yes, exactly. So now the team's hanging out under Braddock Manor, uh, very, you know, Marvel UK Captain Britain comics, using what is ostensibly the old mastermind computer, though no one ever says the name. To uh, mm-hmm. kind of keep cab keep tabs. Well, on it's the- confusing. Once Mastermind is the X Men villain, like yes, like, the computer Mastermind and Jason Wingard have always been a little confusing for people who didn't read Captain Britain, which is most Americans because it wasn't readily available to be read. So yeah, and uh, Wolfsbane's on monitor duty with her mostly shaved head and her leather jacket. That's kind of a precursor to. Uh, the weird to Philippus new mutants and uh, just sort of being narrated over in a way that reminds me of uh, the character wild style from the Lego movies, just sort of this girl playing at goth capped mm-hmm. over with the line Britain sails by in a river of blood. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, the whole, the whole story is very like shadow run. 
one. Like it's very that kind of like 90s cyberpunk world mm-hmm. of darkness adjacent kind of vibe. Uh, so then Betsy shows up and then Tangerine shows up and then Betsy spends the entire issue shitting on Just Tangerine. shitting on Tangerine. Yeah. <laughs> Which. OK, so so here's my blind spot. Uh, basically. Yeah, you know, I didn't start. My first Excalibur was 71. So the fatal attractions tie in. Right. Oh, my God. I don't think started... started reading right when it got bad. <laughs> but Correct. a lot of people did. <laughs> Correct. You know. <laughs> Uh, I only started reading the Claremont and Davis stuff recently. So I'm like halfway through cross time caper now. Oh yeah. Well, congrats on that. That's fun. That's it, a fun it, journey. It, to it be on. is. And it's, Oh my God, it's the weirdest shit. I can't believe it's it. So like, good. There's nothing like it. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing like it in the world, but that means I've read like zero Excalibur between issues 17 and 71 roughly. So I only learned a couple of weeks ago in prepping for this episode that Tangerine was a pre-existing character. Mm-hmm. Not even thinking about that, like one appearance in one panel of uh, MI-13. But uh, yeah, appara- like looking at pictures from her original appearance, I'm like, she looks like she's dressed like uh, the model from the cover. of. The she world. has the coolest design in the world. And here she's just like a boring 90s lady. Yeah, I mean, they basically like, gave them the precursors to like the 2000s X-Men movie, like leather outfits. Yeah, whereas on in, in the Alan Davis story, first of all, famously, she has a huge curly orange afro, which is why she's called Tangerine. Mm-hmm. Um, but also she's just sort of like generally dressed in like 70s styled sci-fi attire that looks awesome. And here she's just kind of whatever. Demanda Martini... My friend, who is a drag queen, was my booth babe at FlameCon. She does a tangerine routine, and uh, with the the Davis design, and she's always just like, "This is the routine that no one gets but me, and that's fine." <laughs> <laughs> but she has a great big orange wig. Uh, but yeah, no, the MI thirteen appearance also is a joke. It says t- it just says that Tangerine's been busy fighting the Mandarin because they're both kinds of you know Oranges. orange fruits. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a weird pull. I do think that Alice was trying to imply that this is who Bridget grows up to be. But since we never see Bridget again, it doesn't really hit. Yeah, that was a connection I never, I never made. But it makes a lot of sense. It absolutely, because it's does. just well, it's sort of like otherwise, why is this character here? Except to yeah. pay homage to the Davis story, but nothing else in this pays homage to the Davis story so it's a little bit like qua and I think yeah. maybe there was there was a plan or it was his idea of like a wink or who knows but uh it's certainly not canon now I don't think so no we're just no. left with a weird story in which Betsy hates this teenager <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and nothing's really exhibited to to explain I mean she's that. rude to Betsy and like she clearly gets Betsy's goat a little bit by being she's like working class and thinks Betsy and Brian are you know posh assholes which is true but Betsy doesn't need her to tell her that we're in the middle of an apocalypse (laughs) like you could just keep that to yourself right like guess what my you know rp accent is not protecting me in dystopian nazi england that kills mutants so you know she's like not right now tangerine um i actually was struck by how uh graphic uh, the descriptions of the violence are in this which is again Mm -hmm. just very 90s but if you go back to days of future past 
Now, again, it's like a different time editorially, but Claremont is much more discreet with um, things like that. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the really shocking thing in, in Rachel's flashbacks and whatnot is that Amanda Stefton is very clearly pregnant when they shoot her to death, but it's all done in silhouette. You know, mm-hmm. here you get like, I mean, the, the one that stood out to me was like, here's where black air is like harvesting the like gold teeth from mutants. And I'm like, okay, so this is just the Holocaust. Whereas Days of Future Past is about <laughs> the Holocaust, but is a little bit, has a little bit of a lighter touch. It's like, do you get that this is about the Holocaust? There's a concentration camp. Our main character is a Jewish girl. Do you get it? But it's not, they're not pulling out mutants gold teeth. I was a little bit like, Warren, they don't have to do that. But you know, yeah, <laughs> it's fine. Bit, bit much. <laughs> I mean, you know, Warren Ellis was famous for um, grit. So it makes sense that this is where he would take a spin on this story. But uh, yeah, so when they when they get to the Black Air Base, it's that's kind of where that's where Ellis really starts to do all his random Ellis idea things. So he's got like techno organic war liquids that look like the brood and come out of the walls mm-hmm. and you know, he's got a, a brain in a jar that insults people when they try to pick a lock. Uh, that was just fun. Uh, you know, and then we and then we get the Doug Lock. Or then we get the body horror of like Doug Lock has been beheaded and turned into their base. And that is a good bit. Uh, it just never really goes. In. Like we don't even see Rain react to it. And in the main story, Rain and Doug Lock are, are, are a whole thing like what's there yeah. you know is it doug is it not doug is it warlock is it not warlock what's going on she has this emotional attachment and clearly the the rain in this world is very jaded but i would have liked to see that reaction you know like betsy doesn't care about doug lock she cared about doug but she doesn't know doug lock i feel like there's there's a version of this story that's maybe like one more issue Maybe it's a two-parter mm-hmm. like the original Days of Future Past where all this stuff is a little bit more fleshed out and you get into these people's heads. I think the issue there is that, and this is the issue with like the issue <laughs> overall, <laughs> is mm-hmm. that uh, I don't think it's saying anything. Like Days of Future Past has a point to it, right? Like mm-hmm. what is this issue saying? It's fun. I enjoy it as like a romp, but there's no larger point really being made that's not already made by Days of Future Past. Like Days of Future is yet to come is mm-hmm. a sequel to Days of Future Past that's about resolving the Rachel Summers and Kate Pride plot. This is just a riff that to me isn't really adding anything besides like, here's a UK twist on the concepts. But even then, there isn't a ton of that. Apart from like Tangerine commenting on like class differentials in England, there isn't really anything else that makes this a specifically British story. Um, So I'm mostly left just thinking that this is, I remember liking this issue as a kid and I find myself wondering why it exists, especially because (laughs) the big reveal at the end that this is one of Brian's like PTSD flashbacks from the time stream i mean that plot had been pretty much dropped by this point that's like Mm -hmm. a a labdell plot from 68 so we're almost 30 issues later it just feels weird to 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 whip that back up and 
I haven't read the the issues right after this in a while. Does anything of consequence spin out of this? Well, okay, so that that's the thing. So this issue is a future set preview for Ellis's next big arc, which is about Black Air and the London Hellfire right. Club and all that stuff. So another whole... arc that goes nowhere and resolves off screen in the yes. middle of onslaught. <laughs> and then Ellis leaves shortly thereafter. But like the whole like taking yeah. Doug Lock for their own. Mm-hmm. sinister machinations thing comes from this uh you know it kind so of i guess in- it's to warn excalibur that black air is up to no good i just feel like we knew that already on some level <laughs> like, I, you know. I think part of it and part of this might might have been a scheduling thing right so next issue carlos pacheco comes in and takes over on art which is clearly mm-hmm. to set up you know another next big art thing they also have to dance around onslaught right so maybe uh, it was know. an inventory story i i think that's if it wasn't an inventory story it was like casey can you give us one more issue before you know right we, yeah we i get mean back I, into I, don't, the important I, stuff. I don't know that they were still doing inventory stories in the classic way but you get what i mean like maybe it's yeah. just a, an idea that they had in their back pocket for like if we need a filler month um it's just very peculiar honestly it, and it's also it's interesting that like this book had did like they, they did a big big four issue arc or three issue arc and then a one-off, then they, the Age of Apocalypse, another one-off, another big three-issue arc, and then it were four standalone issues in a row. Mm-hmm. They go to the pub, Colossus and Pete fight, Wolf Snake confronts Reverend Craig, and they go to the future. Um, yeah. It's definitely wheel-spinny in that way. You can definitely mm-hmm. see the sort of like, oh, we have to you know work around uh, uh, the big storyline that nobody actually knows what the hell it's about, the, you know, the whole onslaught thing. So Right. And yeah, I mean, when, and again, like you really see Damask and all of those characters are launching their evil scheme as the London Hellfire Club is like finally coming to fruition. And then it literally just resolves between issues is my recollection, right? Like, it's just like, oh, the demon Margali is summoned, got out, but we we fixed it. Don't worry. Meanwhile, Onslaught. I'm like, wait, what? I, I was stunned when I went back and read that. Um, for I think the Brian episode because he's like in all the Hellfire Club stuff there. Uh, I was just like, does this really not go anywhere? And it it honestly doesn't. Yeah, I mean, there's only there's only a few issues left after that story where before Ellis takes off. So, but yeah, the, they have to stop in the middle of that story. I think it was like issue 100 even for like Scott. It was issue 100, yeah, yeah, to show up and be like, oh, Xavier protocols. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then they only get. 25 more so mm-hmm. but uh yeah no we so we leave That's the ben uh, rob era though which is wisdom free for the most part so you won't have to cover too much of it on this show i i dropped it i when i was originally reading i i dropped somewhere in the ben rob run just because i hated how he wrote well, so did him. everybody that's so, why it got canceled no disrespect yeah. to ben rob but <laughs> but also that's why <laughs> but it is why it's like, sorry, we don't care about the dragons of the Crimson Dawn. We just don't. It's not going to happen. Oh, God, they spent so much time in that era trying to make the Crimson Dawn happen. And, and this... yet Betsy never turns up, even though the Crimson Dawn... I mean, I, she, but I guess she does. She never talks to Spiral, which is the thing that drives me crazy because Spiral is the other character who gets Crimson Dawned, and that's like Betsy's arch nemesis. Mm-hmm. But Rob never brings the two storylines. This is not a Crimson Dawn it's like X-Men. That, so it could have been resolved with a phone call and they don't pick up the phone. I mean, I don't know 
if Betsy has Spiral's number. But actually, if you speak Spiral's name, she hears it. So she exactly. could have just been like, Spiral, get over here. <laughs> but this issue ends with sort of the, the Bob Newhart ending of Brian it's waking so up. It's so abrupt, and, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's even worse than, like, the Newhart ending at least is like a funny joke. This is more of a Dallas moment really where it's like oh you've been in the shower the whole time and that whole last season didn't happen um and but like we know that because this issue is set in the future like we're used mm. to the days of future past motif by this point or if you're not because you're a newer reader it's only a year after age of apocalypse so you're familiar with or actually when it came out it's the same year as age of apocalypse like, i'm thinking about the cover date but yeah. uh, release wise it's still 95 so you know i don't think anybody was reading this story expecting this is what the book is now we've jumped seven years in the future and yada 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 but it is still a bit of a whimper of an ending it doesn't resolve like we get the reveal with doug Locke, which is upsetting and then moments later someone pulls a gun on brian and then he wakes up and that's it <laughs> Which is so funny again, because what is in the future, he probably would have survived that gunshot. Yes. Well, first of all, yes. Like, because he seems to have his powers. So, yeah. but you know, it's just, let's not worry about it, I guess. I just, yeah. this is this is <laughs> one of those things where I'm just left wondering what the point is. Like, if you look at Age of Apocalypse, those stories don't have repercussions for the main continuity because it's an alternate timeline. But every single mini in Age of Apocalypse tells you something about the characters by who they are in different circumstances. Mm -hmm. This story, none of the characters besides Pete are and Rain, I guess, are particularly different. So it's not really a big contrast and like what's different here is it's like oh yeah if you were subjected to a genocide you might be grouchy like that's really the only differential so again except to set up that an organization that's mysterious that works for the government of the uk called black air is up to no good i don't really feel like it accomplishes much there was a general push in this this period to sort of vaguely nudge things toward days of future past like right onslaught, like we're building, yeah. building to it yeah onslaught was maybe like a turning point there i mean when uh, did they do heroes reborn is right after onslaught it was so right after like onslaught. x-factor started playing with the hound program um, mm -hmm. well and again like rory campbell becoming ahab is clearly a plot that's supposed to be happening mm -hmm. uh, it just doesn't it just does not know. And there's even in the Lobdell, like around when Scott and Jean get married, there's, and this is just like, what the fuck are you thinking? Like, there's a moment where Jean's like, we might try to have a baby soon and like, you might be born to Rachel. It's like, that's not how it works. That's never been how it works. Rachel's from a completely different timeline. And like, maybe I guess she means we might have a girl and name her Rachel, but like, that's not, it's not a loop. That's the point of Rachel but don't it's it's fine it's fine it was 30 years ago and I can't get mad about it now but it's very strange um but yeah I mean I, I guess that the big thing that this shows is like that Pete wisdom could be broken um mm -hmm. and like to demystify him a little bit but 
you know, I know you adore him, but like a lot of Alice's focus on Pete Wisdom, it doesn't quite work for me. That character didn't really work for me until Paul Cornell, if I'm being 100% honest. No, I, I think Cornell got a lot, m- took the elements of the character that worked and made them stronger, absolutely. I think this mm-hmm. issue, if we're talking about Pete, is the thing where it's like, oh, I should probably tell Kitty I love her at some point. Not that, right, you know, before Pete... the world ends. Yes. Yeah. So I guess this is a key issue for people really invested in the pride and wisdom relationship. I just never was, especially. <laughs> I, I, I would say not as key as, say, like Dream Nails trilogy or pride and wisdom. But but yeah, it's. <laughs> well, they had. Yeah, they did have their own miniseries. So like it's not, you know, essential. I'm just I guess that this, you know, matters. Um... But uh, so. Let's, I guess, let's talk a little bit more about the art in this issue. Uh, I guess the big, you know, the big thing that we touched upon already was the age inconsistencies. Uh, you know, Megan, Betsy, and Rain not really being drawn in their, their you know, mid to late 30s. Uh, well, and specifically yet, not looking any different in age from Tangerine, which also that really messes with the script. You know, it's only it's, been seven years. Like, they don't need to look, you know withered it would be nice to to feel like there's a distinction between all of them no they're uh, still gonna have their shit together but uh you know it's it's funny so you know casey jones has been the penciler for the last few issues and and he definitely hasn't been without his flaws but i will say i will miss the consistency that he brought to this book for just a moment just because the last i don't know four or five issues before this it was like every penciler under the sun you know all in one issue so you're getting like ken lashley and larry stroman and Mm -hmm. actually bad artists uh kind of thrown at the wall those guys at least are are good right yes exactly um it's uh you know it's this book was always the also ran of the line in a lot of ways and i think that the lack of attention paid to art is part of that uh but I, I do like his pencils on this issue, um, except for the, the fact that all the women look the same age, which we've already said. And, yeah. you know, I don't I don't mind <laughs> that Pete looks rough. He smokes like a chimney. So that's fine. <laughs> I guess going through some of the categories pretty quickly here. Uh, how many pages does Wisdom appear in? Four. Uh, it's another slim showing. But uh, here he kind of fills more of the Bosley role, giving the angels their mission. Uh, and Brian, who's also there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, best words of wisdom is, is when he kind of gets petulant for a moment. And, you know, Karma tells the team, oh, he's got a mission for you. And he's like, I could tell them I have a mission. I could tell them. It's, right. it's this weird moment where, you know, he's supposed to be the spy master, but he comes off like a like a, just like a whiny old man. And, and Well, the implication is that his brain's pretty broken at this point and that Karma does a lot of the speaking for him. So, yes it's him sort of asserting himself but since again we haven't seen his usual behavior apart from the narration we don't necessarily get that you know what i mean yeah we're only seeing him in this exceptional moment of of clarity you know i mean later writers again we're talking about paul clarnell play off the fact that pete's actually very good at spycraft you know Mm -hmm. he's he's a lout but if you've got vampires invading the you know from the moon he's your guy uh, you know, th- to be fair, he's kind of still in his introductory phase. And so Ellis is shaping him so that he learns how to people 
and and he's showing us what will happen if Pete doesn't learn those soft skills. But uh, this this is definitely this issue is food for the people who are like, I like Pete Wisdom best when he's you know the butt of the joke, which certainly mm-hmm. that certainly that version of him does work. Best insult goes to the uh, mini Metroid mother brain that acts uh, as a living lock in the Black Air Base. Uh, you know, it, it, not so much what it says; it kind of has two lines, like trying to pick me, girly. Uh, you know, before Psylocke fries it, so much as the way it says those lines. Uh, you know, it's basically every other night Arthur comes upon in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know, the ones who argue with him about swallows and taunt him in outrageous French accents. It's this mm-hmm. like, it's a dark and gritty reimagining of the of the old British farce Excalibur, if if just right. for a moment. You know, a lot, of course, a lot of that, that farcical nature was beaten out of the book a long time ago. Now, does Pete use his hot knives in this issue? No. Does he smoke? Yes, because shit don't change. Uh, Fashion Watch... <laughs> I would like to joke that Pete is still in the same off the rack suit he was wearing when he got beat up by Colossus in, in issue 92, uh, 17 years later. But the fact is it very well could be the same suit. <laughs> Cause he is Certainly not, dra- could be, yeah. uh, he is not drawn in varying fashions uh, in this time. At least Leonard Kirk gave him a Robin's egg blue turtleneck at the end of uh, MI 13. There's actually, this is probably the first issue where the letter columns are just almost exclusively about wisdom. Uh, so I've got a few of them here reading selections. Krista uh, Schneiderite of Clinton Township, Michigan writes, I must admit, however, that at first I did not like Pete Wisdom, as in at all. By issue 87, I wasn't sure if I liked Pete, but by the John Dreamdales trilogy started, I was intrigued, hooked. The more I saw of Kitty and Pete together, the more I liked the idea of it. And, it, uh, and then it kind of evolves into, so please keep Pete on the team. Don't make him leave Kitty the way Piotr did. It's a evolution right there in the letter uh, and uh, max Leiter of newport rhode island writes as far as wisdom and shadow cat are concerned i think it's a mistake to have them fall in love i think colossus and kitty should get back together max you are wrong uh ross Arrington- uh, i mean i don't think he's wrong about <laughs> wisdom and kitty but he's wrong about peter and kitty for sure yes absolutely <laughs> um Ross Aaron Thompson of Seguin, Texas says, uh, I must say that I'm not a very big Pete Wisdom fan. He seems like the kind of guy Kitty's mother should have warned her about, as if Kitty's parents are a model of a stable relationship. And notably, uh, her father is mobbed up, so yes. it's not really. <laughs> not a good example. Uh, hopefully, Colossus will show up and beat the you-know-what out of him before he ruins Which he Kitty's- does. Yes. <laughs> before their letter was even published, or is that after this? No, before, no this, right? is, this is definitely, this is probably somewhere around when issue 90 or so came out. But, uh, man, people at this point do not know about Colossus. <laughs> well, Colossus' characterization, as we think of it retrospectively, is in many ways established in that issue where he beats the shit out of Pete Wisdom, actually. so That is you know, true. They didn't have reason to know. <laughs> but they'll get there soon. <laughs> it hadn't yeah. happened yet. <laughs> uh, and uh, Dowd Omer of Coming to Kentucky says, I think it is good Wisdom and Kitty are more than friends since both were loners and needed somebody. Uh, yes, that classic, chronically single loner rebel Catherine Ann Pride. And uh, AJ Ellis of Kugara, Australia, just sort of yells excitement. Uh, Kitty and Wisdom, that total hate, respect, dislike, attraction thing going and an X-Files reference. This is what I live for. Uh, and then I kind of looked at some of the other uh, X-Books that were coming out that month just to see what was going on at the same time. Uh, Archangel got a one shot. I've never read it. I know nothing about it. It's weird. It's by Peter Milligan. Mm. Um, and it's sort of about 
like Warren trying to embrace his metal wings. He like meets a ghost. Uh, Betsy's jealous of the ghost. Their relationship <laughs> is is not great at this point. The real problem with it is that it conflicts with the Crimson Dawn miniseries. It, they don't make sense in continuity together because oh. it's all about Angel's metal wings and then the Crimson Dawn story is is not about that. So. Crimson anyway, Dawn don't worry about it. Itself. Yeah, <laughs> you really don't. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, we got more adventures of young Nathan Dayspring in the first issue of Ascani Sun by Scott Lobdell, Jeff Loeb, and Gene Ha. Pretty good. Not as good as Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Yeah. Storm went back into the Morlock tunnels to learn the origins of Gene Nation and maybe kind of sort of flirt with Cable a little in the first issue of uh, a, uh, her own miniseries by Warren Ellis and uh, Terry Dotson. Not the last time. Not great. Pretty to look at. Like most Mikhail Rasputin stories, better in theory than an execution. Yes. Uh, Wolverine and Archangel go looking for a way to save Psylocke after she was mauled by Sabretooth and unleashed the Crimson Dawn upon the world. So that's where that comes from. Uh, but we also yeah, got I'm the a first Betsy appearance... super fan, but I would not recommend uh, the Crimson Dawn series. No. <laughs> but she's no, barely Crimson in it, Dawn. but still, it's just not, not essential. The only thing I like about anything related to the Crimson Dawn is the character Gomer the Ancient. That is it. Sure. I like <laughs> the weird new powers that Betsy gets, but the everything else about it is really stupid. I actually think that those powers would be cool if they gave them to Kana now. And you could say that like the Crimson Dawn had unlocked powers that were innate to that body. Um, that might be like a cool thing. Like the, the shadow teleporting stuff is neat and is very ninja-y. Uh, but, you know, otherwise it gave Betsy that garish tattoo and made her she had like a new cold personality which like is just not that interesting to me because betsy's most interesting to me when she's being an absolute mess uh not when she's being like really <laughs> reserved because that's not really who the character is mm -hmm. to me anyway yeah uh and then uh not going through all of them but kind of usually pick about five a month uh bishop fights fatal one of the dork beast henchfolk in x-men 49 that's it um I have no thoughts on Fatal. Yeah. She was green, is my recollection. Purple? I don't really remember. She's like a Crayola color, is, yes. my, is what I recall. And she uh, <laughs> she's with Havoc when Havoc is undercover in Dark Beast Brotherhood in uh, yes. Mackie X Factor. Yeah. Somebody who looked very cool in the mid-90s at the yeah, time. Yeah, very cool design, never... but like I don't think ever... Oh, she, I think she was in Excel in uh, X-Factor Investigations when like those characters who've been decimated showed up as a terrorist in uh, Peter David's Mutant Town. I oh, think she's gosh, with them. Yeah. yeah. But uh, otherwise, it's been not a, not a great set of years for, for old Fatal. That's it. <laughs> uh, and then ads so uh this issue we get a judge dread statue for people who are into that berry berry kicks which at the same with it which at the time was giving away marvel overpower cards marvel's ultra oh, force or malibu's ultra force the comic the cartoon and the action figures uh dc versus marvel trading cards a video game called shell shock for playstation sega, sega saturn and pc cd-rom marvel vision i was a magazine. sega saturn household were, oh were you yes um for because i had been jealous of the sega genesis kids when i was a kid in part because the x-men games and super nintendo were bad but uh with the saturn versus the playstation i miscalculated for sure yeah 
Now, I, 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 we were a Super Nintendo house, and I had that really bad Spider-Man and the X-Men versus arcade game that was. Yeah, Arcade's Revenge. I complain about that on my show all the time because yeah. it sucks. Yeah, Storm yeah. is a water level. Yeah, she was, wasn't she? No one. Yeah, I never, I never level. got very far in that game. I don't know. No, it's it was hard and not fun. Exactly. Anyway, sorry, please continue. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. You. Always good to relive the. Uh, relive those days but uh what else did we have here oh yeah a house ad for fantastic four pre-onslaught which is like saying come watch us peter out uh 96 Fleer ultra baseball cards and on the back opening in theaters january 12th 1996 biodome starring Polly shore and stephen baldwin yikes um <laughs> <laughs> uh connor this has been a fantastic time uh before i let you go how can people follow you online and support the things that you are doing you can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can find all of the episodes and links to the merch store, the Discord server, and everything else at Cerebrocast.com. Uh, the most recent episode as of this recording should be actually Excalibur oriented. Uh, it's Kailun with Sam Guido, which I'm, I, I enjoyed doing that episode. It's shorter than some of my longer epics because Kailun has a relatively scant publication history, but hopefully that's to change soon. Um, and uh, I have a bunch of exciting things coming up. Leah Williams is coming back to the pod to talk about Boom Boom. Spencer Ackerman and I are doing Fenris for Yom Kippur. Um, because we're, that's our sense of humor. We were like, we got to do it before Yom Kippur because we need to be forgiven after we do the Fenris episode. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I love uh, I love doing it. I have a new podcast launching soon called Single Female Lawyer that... Uh, revisits the classic 90s sitcom Ally McBeal with Alex Abad Santos. Uh, so that's very different, but is from the same time period as these uh, late 90s Excalibur comics. And much like Warren Ellis, Excalibur has very interesting feminism. Uh, I think that's it for me for now. Thank you for having me, Dan. This was fun. Absolutely. And uh, listeners, next time, uh, next month, uh, X Man shows up. So I'm sorry about that in advance, but I did call in an expert and yeah, it's Zach. Uh, but until next time. <laughs> oh, he did my X-Man episode. So check that out if you're an X-Man fan or a Zach Jenkins fan. Are you going to do the X-Man issue also? Because it's a crossover. Probably. Yeah, I'll probably have Yeah, to. it's like, I want to say it's 11 or 12, maybe 12. It's uh, like Moira stuff, which I've, is always I've... again fun in retrospect now that she's evil. I've got it buried in my filing cabinet. So I got to dig that out. <laughs> no, those single issues of like the weird late 90s stuff truly do just like lurk in my drawers because I've had to eBay so many things for this fucking book. <laughs> 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 like, uh, when will Marvel collect the Amanda Sefton, Dan Abden, Andy Lanning miniseries in trade? God damn it. It's called magic. Just sell it and make people think it's Ilyana. They'll buy it. That's the but, key. Uh, That's the key. I digress. <laughs> but uh, until next time, listeners, sold off Torag.